Today is the final day of this series on Judges. Um, as you know, once a year we try and tackle a book of the Bible that's kind of not so easy to get your head around to understand what's going on. And this time we did Judges and we come to an end of it. Like all good books, it's got a beginning, a middle and the end. And so, how does, the, how does the story begin? Well, it begins like this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites. And the book sets itself up like that with two things to note. Firstly, this ragtag bobtail group of people are going to take on this massive empire and going to find a space that God has given them. It's not the idea of a big powerful group going into a small power. It's actually quite the opposite. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that it's the death of Joshua, this great leader. And after the death What's going to happen to us now? And actually, the rest of the first chapter begins to outline the Lord's. They ask the Lord, and the Lord gives them indication of what's going on. That's the big, how the book begins. But actually, the book is kind of like a slow decline until you get to the end. And the very final verse of the book of Judges says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's kind of like there's just... Everybody's just doing their own thing. And in a sense, the beginning, the very beginning and the very end tells you the whole story. And in the middle, well, in the middle, you've got a little refrain that happens over and over again. The Israelites once again did evil, comes all the way through. And, then every, and when that happens, God raises up a judge. And we've looked at some of these people. Ehud, the disabled guy, the left-handed disabled guy. Deborah, the woman who looked out and said, no more. Something's got to change around here. Gideon, who discovered that weakness is no barrier to God using you. Abimelech, who found the dangers of power. Jephthah, who found out that actually the words do have power. In the, in the end, he was tripped up by his own words when he made his vow about his daughter. And then Samson, this very troubled, restless, discontented man that God uses. But actually, as you're reading through the, the judges, you're going, actually... Almost the stock of people that God has got to use becomes weaker. And all the time, what's happening is these people are becoming like this creature where they just blend in. They look exactly the same. You can barely tell the difference between an Israelite and a Canaanite. That's what's happened. That's how it begins. We've inquired of the Lord. But actually, the slide is we've just become the same as everybody else. And in the end, how do you deal with the idea of just being the same as everybody else? Well, you do what everybody else does. You do whatever you see fit in your own eyes. And it's inevitable, perhaps. Until you get to the end of chapter 16, which is the end of Samson's story, and then chapter 17, and something different happens uh, between chapter 17 and, and chapter 21. I've never heard a sermon on any of these passages. And when I tell you the story, you might understand why. But essentially, it's two stories across those chapters, and they both have the same format. So in the first, there was a Levite, a priest, from Bethlehem that went to Ephraim. Okay? And in chapter 19, 21, there was a Levite, a priest, from Ephraim that went to Bethlehem. So it's kind of like a really neat sort of way of setting up a story. It's about two priests... One went from Bethlehem, goes to a place called Ephraim, and the other from Ephraim and goes to a place called 
Bethlehem. It's kind of a fantastic, it's not fantastic, but it's a, it's a good way that storytellers use. And that's how these four chapters work out. We're going to read from pieces from both. We're not going to read all four chapters for reasons of time. But uh, So if you've got a Bible, you can get one. Do you want to read from chapter 17? And we'll try and make sense of this together and then ask ourselves what it means to us. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. Which every mother would say if you just robbed her of money. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I'll give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod. Uh, an object of uh, a, a, a sort of a means of worship and some household goods and installed one of his sons as his priest in those days Israel had no king everyone did as he, they saw fit a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who'd been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay on his way he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim and Micah asked him where are you from I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah he said and I'm looking for a place to stay and Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. And presumably the son who had been made a priest was made redundant. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Let's just read on a little bit. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the Dan tribe of Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle. Now, this is only a small thing, but in the very first chapter, you read about this tribe of Dan who didn't have any land because they'd been confined to the hill country. It's in chapter 1, verse 34. And they still haven't found anywhere to live. So they're still like this restless, moving around tribe of people, this gang of people. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. They, the, the man, these men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. And the story goes on that they come to Micah's place and they find that he's there and he helps them out. And then they come back with 600 of them and they get to see where the priest is. And they say to the priest, wouldn't you rather come and work for us? So they hire the priest to work for them. So what's the story? Well, it's all under this idea of, do you think this is okay? It's kind of like a strange story. Do you think this is okay? So you've got this bloke who robs his mother and she curses him, but gives him back the money and he makes a carved image. Do you think this is okay? And if you're in any doubt, you're supposed to say, no, it's not okay. 
He creates a shrine. Is that okay? Can you just set up a temple in your own house? He hires a priest. Is, is that okay? The priest gets a better offer. Hang on. And he takes everything with him. Is that okay? And the answer is no. It's almost a comical story. But what's happened is that religion's just become a laughing stock. This is what's happened during the time of the judges. This is, this is what it means to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It means that you turn from a relationship to, with God, with a God who does speak, with a God who says, this is how I want things to be done. And you move it to a way of using God for your own ends. That's what Micah was doing. It was, and it's, it's that last bit in chapter 17. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. I've got God on my side. I stole the money from my mum. She gave me money back. I've created this. God's bound to be on my side. Is this okay? You swap a relationship with God with all that that means. A God who says, this is how I want you to do things. And you turn it into religion where you try and make religion do stuff for you. It happens all the time. It's when we say, I don't believe in a God like that. I prefer to think of God as this. Because actually what you're wanting to do is make God tamer than he actually is. And that's, I mean, I'm not, this isn't just a plug for Thursday, although it is a plug for Thursday. One of the reasons it's really important to keep reading the Bible is it's so easy for us to make a God in our own image. That's why we keep reading the Bible. You see, and you've heard me say this before. The truth is, most of us pray. All of us pray when we get into trouble, and some of us are in trouble ever such a lot. <laughs> so prayer is not the big deal. It's who you're praying to is the big deal. What sort of God have we got? And that's why we read the Bible, because actually the, the God of the Bible is not as predictable as we would wish, and he's not as easy to understand as we would wish, and he certainly doesn't do everything the way we think it should happen. Do you want that God or do you want a God of your own making? Do you think it's okay? The church has got a long history of doing this. This is us, folks. We do this. We make it easier for ourselves. And where that ends up is a parody of true Christianity. You end up in the land of the Vicar of Dibley or Father Ted. That's where it ends up. Or you end up with bejeweled, white-suited tele-evangelists. Or you end up with your church as a cosy club. You make your own God. And then you destroy your own people. Because the second story is not comical at all. This is how the second story begins. There's a Levite from Ephraim that went to Bethlehem. And someone suggested, and you can almost imagine it, that the narrator is almost going, well, that's what happened there. But have you heard this one about the priest? And again, the priest. In those days, Israel had no king. There's the refrain again. Now, a Levite, 
a priest who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Before the church begins on a Sunday morning, um, a few of us pray together. And um, I, I will often uh, try out my sermon on the people that are there. And um, I was talking to, uh, with Val this morning. And I said, oh, this is how the story begins. And Val's first reaction was, what, a priest had a concubine? And I think that's kind of what you're supposed to almost go, what? Yeah. A priest lives in a remote hill country, takes a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. And you're supposed to go, what? <laughs> really? That sort of stuff didn't happen, does it? She left him and she went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. I'm just realizing that if you don't know what a concubine is, it's, it's kind of like a semi-wife. It's, it's kind of halfway between a wife and a mistress. It's, it's more permanent than mistress. It's not as committed as a wife. It's not a good idea, if any of you are thinking about it. It's, it's not a good idea. It's one of those questions. Why does it happen there and not now? And we'll tackle that on Thursday night, just in case any of you are now wondering whether this is what the Lord is asking of you. Okay, back to the story. She left him. She went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem and Judah. After she'd been there for four months... Her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. That's surprising. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. And in fact, the story goes on that his father in, her father-in-law kept saying, no, stay longer, stay longer. They stayed five days in the end. And one of the reasons the father-in-law would do that is because actually her, his daughter has brought shame on the family. So the father-in-law is trying to make everything okay. Don't sue us. That's what he's doing. But anyway, after five days, they set off to go home. And uh, as they're traveling home, they look for hospitality. Now, those of you who've been around in church know enough about the Old Testament to know that hospitality was the one thing that everybody had to do. If you didn't offer hospitality, you were shameful, really. Um, but this, is, this goes wrong. This goes wrong. And they end up in a place called Gibeah. Now, you don't know where that place is, and it doesn't really matter, but except to say it's a town belonging to the people of God. Let me read from verse 16. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, they were people of God, came in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and he saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where did you come from? And he answered, we're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one's taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house, and he fed his donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. And while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said, no, my friends, don't, don't be so vile. 
Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Now, pause for a moment because this next bit is awful. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now. And you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But men wouldn't listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. And at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there till daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. And he put her on his donkey and he set out for home. And when he reached home, he took a knife and he cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. The chapter ends with this. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. This is one of those, it's, it's kind of like almost the darkest story in the Bible. Darkest story in the Bible. Just so you know what happens next. They have a civil war. And uh, the tribes come together and they, they fight each other. They kind of try and exterminate the Benjamites, the guys who did it, but they don't manage it. But what they do say in the end is, we're not going to intermarry with you. You're on your own. And then, in a, in a bad situation, just getting worse... The people of Benjamin, this little tribe of people, go, well, where are we going to get wives for our husbands, for our men? Because if we don't have wives, we'll just die out. And so they go and attack another group of people, and they kill all the men, and they kill all the women who aren't virgins, and they take the women, and they become their wives. But there's not enough. So then they go... And they go, there's a people in a place called Shiloh. And they have a festival. And um, the women dance. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to wait until that starts. And we're going to run in and grab one of those women each. And we're going to kidnap them and take them back home. And you go, I never knew. I never knew there was such darkness in the Bible. When that story began about the, the men coming out and saying, bring that man out, we want to rape him. Some of you will have heard that story before, but you heard it in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was awful then, but this is worse because these are the people of God. You know this isn't okay. It's not okay on any grounds. 
this fellow who has a concubine goes and tries to get her back because she is his property. And, um, but, but what sort of man would say, I'd rather they rape you than me? What sort of man would say to the women, you go, at least we'll be safe? What sort of man would see a woman who has been so violently assaulted and then just say to her, come on, get up, let's go? The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. And when the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, the people who suffered the most were the women. Because the men just become absolute hard-hearted brutes. And the women are on the receiving end time and time and time again. And that's why the story ends like it does. In those days, Israel had no king. And everybody did as they saw fit because the house is absolutely wrecked and ruined. So why is it in the Bible? And what are you supposed to do with it? What are you supposed to do with it? Well, it's there because it's a story from a time. You know when people say about the Bible, you know when non-Christians say, or people who are kind of attacking the faith go, the Bible's just made up, it's just made up stories from people who are trying to persuade other people to believe. I, want, I always want to say, actually, if that's true, you've, A, you haven't read the Bible because they've included stories there that nobody who was trying to promote a faith would include. These are the bleakest stories of humanity that are in this book. So, so if you were just trying to write a storybook to try and persuade other people to believe something, you wouldn't include these stories. You would excise these stories. You would take these out and say, no, we'll just put the good stories in when God is always the deliverer. Nothing ever goes bad. You choose him and all is well. You wouldn't put this in. It's a story from a time. It's a story from a time for a people of God. This is not us tutting at the rest of the world. This is an opportunity for God. Do you know what? The church has not had an unblemished past with this. Um, one of the books I'm reading at the moment is about uh, Elizabethan England, where they kept switching sides as to whether the country was Protestant or Catholic. And the only thing they had in common was they kept burning people. And it was the church. How, does, how did God's people end up like that? How did God's people end up so warped and twisted that we think that's how we deal with people? And so I think one of the reasons it's in the Bible, and we haven't really heard it very well at times, as I'm saying, but it's a warning. I think it's a warning. Now, you, you know, we want to say we're not like that. Well, no. Well, I can't help but hear Jesus come along and go, you've heard it said in the past, but I say to you. And what Jesus does in, in, in Matthew then, he, he, he sort of says, in the past you've heard, you know, it's like, don't rape people. But I, it's almost like Jesus would say, but, but I say to you, don't use one another. 
don't ride roughshod over each other. Men, don't put women down. Don't make them less. Don't silence them. And God, in Judges, almost lets his people become a parody of the very people that he wanted them to be. And yet, God hasn't finished this story. It's in the bleakest of the days of the Old Testament that actually God's, and it's almost like you hesitate to use the word, don't you? God's grace operates. What would you want to do with these people? What would you want to do to that bloke? What would you want to do to those fellas? I want to wipe you out. I want to blot you out. I want nothing to do with you. But the grace of God is seen. There's grace for days that are the darkest days. There's grace for the days when no one deserves grace. Because Judges closes. In the next book in the Bible, you have a little jewel called Ruth. (laughs) Ah, we all like the story of Ruth because it's like, you know, darling buds of May. Compared to Judges, anyway. Except it's not, is it? Because it's like a foreign woman who feels vulnerable and a man called Boaz, who's an upright man, who doesn't rape the foreigner, but who stands up for her, protects her, and is her savior figure. And then Samuel, where God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do a new work with you. It's a, it's a grace, grace, grace. It's the book of Samuel that's going to have David. And David, King David, who messes up more than ever, but will pray, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, don't give up on me. So in this darkest of moments in the Bible, this is a story we're reminded that we are created, we are held in. We are created free, we are fallen in fear, but we are redeemed beyond our wildest expectations. You read it not so that you say, I'm better than those people. I might be bad, but at least I'm better than them. No, you read it going, that's the sort of God we have. A God who sees us at our very, very worst and does not treat us as we deserve. But it does mean we have to own up. It means that actually forgiveness is offered when you own up, when you don't just try and assume that it's okay. This week, some of you will know that Leonard Cohen died, and uh, on a bleak Sunday morning sermon, it seemed right to finish with a quote from Leonard Cohen, who in one of his songs writes this, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. It's not coming to God and going, God, we've got it all sorted out. It's coming to God and going, I'm flawed and I'm broken and I'm cracked. And that's where I need the light. And so we come to the end of a series on judges and not rah, rah, rah. It's, oh God, protect us. And one last thing. That's why we pray. That's why churches need to pray. We don't pray that God will do stuff. Actually, we do, but that's not actually the, the real reason we need to pray. 
The real reason we need to pray is, oh God, don't let us become like that. Oh God, don't let us become like that. Because you don't set out like that. You set out at the beginning of the book of Judges. <laughs> this is a slow slide. God, don't let us end up like that. That's why we pray together. God, keep us in your presence. God, keep us close to you. God, hold us. And God, on our worst days, don't stop fighting us. Wrestle with us, we pray.